We are drawing near the end of our sermon series and Sunday school series through the gospel according to Mark. We are in chapter 15 this morning, verses 33 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. Before we do that, let us pray together. Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts by the power of your spirit to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey in joy in faith. For we pray this through the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm actually going to read verses 33 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw That in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our passage this morning picks up in the middle of the crucifixion account in Mark's gospel at the sixth hour or around noontime. At this point, Jesus has been on the cross, according to Mark's gospel, since the third hour, which is about 9 a.m., and I think that it's safe to assume that Jesus had to be exhausted by now. His body, which was hanging naked and exposed to the noontime heat, had been bruised, battered, and bloodied from the horrible flogging he had received at the hands of the Roman soldiers just before his death march to Golgotha, in which he carried at least part of the way what probably would have been a very heavy horizontal beam of the cross to which he is now crucified. The Romans, you see, had perfected the horrible, maniacal art of torture, of beating someone with letter whips, with sharp pieces of glass and bone and lead embedded into them, which not only ripped open the skin with each lash, but cut into the bone and muscle. 
And they would beat the victims to near death. Occasionally they crossed that line. And all of that was a prelude to hanging them on this instrument of death that was the cross. If the scourging was not enough, the cross was particularly cruel. It was designed to deliver a slow, painful death. This is why our word excruciating comes from the word crucify. And the agony for those who died on the cross was excruciating. Sometimes victims would be tied to the cross to hang up there for days left to dehydration and exposure or even predation by wild animals which found an easy meal of a victim unable to get away. Some, as was in Jesus' case, were nailed to the cross. The nails were perfectly placed to inflict maximum suffering. The arms were extended out wide and huge nails were driven through the hands or the wrist. The guards had been trained to place these nails so that they would not break any bones, but so that they would hold the body to the cross in a manner that would require the crucified to pull himself up to breathe. Since the chest muscles and lungs were hyperextended and with every movement, Not only was the crucified's scourged raw back rubbing against the rough wood of the cross, but the nails and the hands and wrist pushed against bones and the median nerves causing fiery bolts of pain to shoot up the arms. Death would come eventually by way of asphyxiation after the victim became too tired and weak to pull himself up to breathe. The feet could be nailed directly to the vertical beam of the cross or to prevent a quicker death by asphyxiation. The feet could be nailed to a foot rest or one foot on each side of the cross to take the strain off the arms and allow the majority of the victim's body weight to be placed on the lower half of the body. This would prolong the suffering perhaps for days in the same manner as those who were tied to the cross. And then death could be sped up by breaking the victim's legs to place all of the weight on the upper body, again limiting the victim's ability to breathe. Other means of death for victims of crucifixion included cardiac rupture, heart failure, profound shock, acidosis from the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood, pulmonary embolism, sepsis. This was the horrible death that was reserved for criminals and enemies of the Roman Empire for the very purpose of not only punishing them, but also as a deterrent to all those who dared to commit a crime or challenge the authority of Rome. The physical agony and the public humiliation of flogging and crucifixion, being hung high on a cross, naked and bloody, was meant to be so horrible as to strike fear into the hearts of any would-be criminal and to make them think twice before committing a punishable offense. And so this is what 
Jesus endured a criminal's death. But also remember here that for Jesus, that as he hung nailed upon the cross, he had he was not just exhausted from the physical torture that his body had endured in the period of time after being condemned to death and in the first three hours of the cross. Keep in mind that Jesus had been arrested the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been tried before the council of chief priests and elders and scribes who had delivered him over to Pilate to be crucified. Pilate questioned him and then according to Luke's gospel sent him to Herod who questioned him as well, and then eventually sent him back to Pilate. And then Pilate, finally, after what had been an all-night and early morning runaround, delivered Jesus over to be beaten and crucified as part of a prisoner exchange that was a custom during the Passover. So all of that is to say that Jesus had to be physically and emotionally exhausted from the little to no sleep that he had had the night before, even before the flogging and the crucifixion. This is what Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, tried to depict for us, the physical agony of the suffering of Christ who hung humiliated on the cross, having been mocked, reviled, and spat upon by his enemies and betrayed, denied, and abandoned by his closest friends. The great 19th century pastor and author J.C. Ryle is surely correct when he noted the catalog of all the pains endured by our Lord's body is indeed a fearful one. Seldom has such suffering been inflicted on one body in the last few hours of life. The most savage tribes in their refinement of cruelty could hardly have heaped more agonizing tortures on an enemy than were heaped on the flesh and bones of our beloved master. And yet, and yet, as horrendous as the physical agony of the cross was for Jesus, there was a pain much deeper that the gospel writers give witness to. A mark in particular, as I noted Last week in our Sunday school lesson wants the hearer, the reader to understand. Mark's audience would have been very familiar with the physical agony of crucifixion. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on that, but he wants to reveal to them a much deeper agony. It's the agony that is the cost of those who are redeemed by a sacrifice. We see here in Mark's text that at the sixth hour, the sky turned dark. The sun is blotted out. In both Greco-Roman and Jewish traditions, darkness is sometimes reported at the death of great persons. It was a sort of divine eulogy or a weeping of all creation over the death of whoever this great person was. To apply the same thought to the crucifixion account as some have done, however, really misses the mark. This is not some mythological, fictional account meant to add weight and honor to the deceased in the minds of generations to come as it surely was when it was said to have happened after the death of someone like Caesar. Caesar. 
This was a historic and supernatural event that should not be mistaken. You see, the darkening of the sun and moon and stars was foretold by the prophets such as Amos and Joel and Isaiah. Amos 8.9 states, for instance, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And when the prophets speak of this event, it's always in the same context. The judgment of God. When Mark tells us that darkness covered the whole land, this isn't Mark being sentimental so that those who would read this account would hold Jesus in high esteem. Rather, he is giving witness to the fact that something truly cosmic is in reality happening. And the timing of this event at Passover should draw our minds to the first Passover, which was immediately preceded by what plague? the plague of darkness over Egypt, an indication that God's curse was upon them. God's judgment had come, and the paschal lamb was being offered up. The very next thing that Mark records for us is Jesus' cry from the cross at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the words of Psalm 22, 1. But let us not think that Jesus is just using this as an opportunity to recite some scripture to the people observing the crucifixion. We can and should expect scripture to flow naturally from the lips of the one who is the word incarnate. But this is an honest cry, a shout of deep despair from the core of Jesus' being. And this is where we begin to see and understand the depth of Jesus' agony. As Jesus' cry from the cross, as he hangs dying in the darkness, brings into sharp relief exactly what is happening. Do you see it? Do you understand These are the words of a man who is experiencing profound, the profound horror of God's judgment. Of one who has been separated from God. Jesus, who was fully God, had become fully man in order to completely identify himself with sinners so that he might undo the curse of the fall, undo the curse of Adam by living in perfect obedience to the Father and then offering up his perfect life as a sacrifice for sin. For only a perfect life would make a perfect sacrifice. And to make atonement for these sins, he was taking the sins of the world upon himself that he might in himself appease the wrath of God in suffering the penalty of these sins. What do sins deserve? The wrath and the curse of God. The wages of sin is death a horrible death. And this meant in covenantal terms by taking upon himself 
the sins of the many that they might be ransomed. He was receiving upon himself the curse of the covenant and was therefore cut off from God. This was the penalty of breaking the covenant. So his cry from the cross expressed the unfathomable pain of one who has been forsaken by God. Notice here how Jesus addresses this prayer and all the other prayers recorded for us by the gospel writers. Jesus addresses God as Father. This is what he taught his disciples to do, to know God intimately. But here on the cross, even though it is still personal, my God, it loses intimacy. Why? Because it is the cry of a man who is experiencing the loss of intimacy, is experiencing alienation and abandonment, is experiencing forsakenness. Mark's gospel is telling us that as excruciating as a physical suffering of the cross was, it paled in comparison to the agony of separation with his heavenly father that is the result of taking on the sins of the world and becoming accursed by God. I think Reformed theologian Philip Ryken is correct when he states, Jesus did not just feel forsaken, he was forsaken. It was not just that Jesus experienced passing sensations of alienation and rejection on the cross. It was more than that. What Jesus was doing on the cross was bearing sin, carrying sin, wearing sin. Jesus was taking the sins of the world upon his shoulders. It's as if God had taken a giant bucket and scooped up all of the sins of his people, all of the jealousy and anger and lying, all of the rebellion and stealing, all of the hypocrisy and the envy and swearing and dumped them out on Jesus Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And once he had done that, the God, God, the Father, had to forsake all of that sin. Jesus was wearing our sin on the cross. God, the Father, could not bear to look at that sin or at his son who was wearing it. He had to avert his gaze. He had to shield his eyes. He had to turn his back. He had to condemn and reject and curse and damn that sin. Think about it. Think about it. Think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a deep mystery, a profound mystery, a horrible mystery, but a wonderful mystery. The sinless one has become sin for us. And it was at the point of humanity's greatest sin, the rejection and crucifixion of God himself and his only begotten beloved son. At the point of our deepest rebellion against him, he offered himself up on the cross. That our deepest sin might be overcome and defeated. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. This meant that the perfect one, the righteous one, 
who found his ultimate delight in fellowship with the heavenly father had been accursed by God and alienated from God for us. For you and for me, God made him his beloved son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God poured out his wrath, his just judgment against sin, a penalty that belonged to us on his son. He became the rejected one for us took the wrath of God onto himself for us. His body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. He was forsaken by God in agony far worse than our wildest nightmares. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He did it for us. And I love how J.C. Rowell brings it home. Was he flogged? It was done so that by his wounds we are healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who have done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last? And that the most painful and disgraceful death, it was done so that we might live forever and be exalted to the highest glory. Mark wants us to see the agony of the cross. He wants us to understand the depths that God has gone to redeem us even to hell itself. But through the grotesqueness of the cross, the glory of God is revealed. What seems to be a humiliating defeat is not as it seems. God is in control from the first to the last. It is ultimately not Jesus' enemies and executioners who take his life from him. It is Jesus who willingly and obediently and joyfully gives it up. He submitted his life even to death, that death and sin might be overcome. And so as his mission is finished, as his full obedience to the Father is fulfilled, as his substitutionary sacrifice has been completed, Jesus breathes his last breath and there is victory there. Redemption is accomplished. Sin and death are defeated, although we will only see the fullness of that in the reality of our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead next Sunday. Reconciliation has become a reality. The veil is torn which separates us from God. A new and living way has opened for us into the presence of God through the tearing of the flesh of Jesus Christ. Even for us Gentiles. 
as the old covenant with its temple system meets its end in the one sacrifice of Jesus. And so, even as we find Jesus' own people rejecting him, we have a Roman centurion, think about that, who stands at the foot of the cross and makes a profession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the glory of the cross. That in it we get a very clear picture of who God is for us. That we can see the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of God's love. That there is no confusion about the extent to which God goes to rescue his people from the pit. And what a horrible and glorious day that Friday. That the sky turned black and the crimson blood of our Savior was poured out for the sins of the many. And the implications of the agony and the glory of the cross are profound in many. I'd like to briefly challenge us to consider and meditate on three this morning. And as we move into this holy week leading to our celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These should be plenty to occupy our thoughts and prayers for the next week. First. The agony of the cross should teach us something about the nature of our sin. The agony of the cross should teach us something about the nature of our sin. One theologian said, if you want to know what God really thinks about sin and what he intends to do about it, look at Jesus rejected on the cross and listen to Jesus forsaken on the cross. That, that is what sin deserves. The wrath and the curse of God. That is what sinners deserve to be put to death and damned for their sins. The cross confronts each of us with the question, do you truly understand the depth of your guilt before God? Do you truly understand the depth of your guilt before God? It's very easy sometimes for us to just write off our sins as no big deal. Oh, I just told a little lie. Oh, I just gossiped a little. Oh, I just was a little bit self-indulgent. I just got a little bit short-tempered and angry. I was just a little bit impatient. It was just a tiny thought of lust. Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. The wages of every sin is death. Everyone. But there are so many ways in which we try to convince ourselves that our sins really aren't that significant. And sometimes we even try to justify them as good and right. This past week, Felicity Huffman, a television star who's been charged in this college acceptance scam, pled guilty to paying $15,000 to get her daughter into a college by taking part in a rigged college entrance exam. She issued a rather stout apology upon her guilty plea this past week in which she confessed her guilt, acknowledged the pain that she had caused to all those involved, expressed a willingness to accept the consequences of her wrongdoing, and articulated her shame over her actions. It's not for me to judge whether this is a true confession or not, but I confess that I was very impressed with the language used in that apology and what was also very clearly avoided. 
It would have been very easy, I think, for her to write off what she had done as an attempt for her daughter to succeed in life, which is something that all of us parents want for our children. There were no excuses, though, only what seemed to be a genuine contrition. And as I read this apology, I found myself wondering if my confessions before the Lord rang out with the same amount of genuineness and depth as I heard in Hoffman's words. Which then made me wonder how often I stop and truly consider the seriousness of my sin. Do I just acknowledge my sin? But do I recognize it's just punishment and consequences? Am I so ashamed of my sin that I truly wish to turn from it? I think these are questions that we are confronted with in the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross is a vivid picture of the seriousness of our sins. So secondly, the cross should teach us to despise our sin. It should teach us to hate our sin. For it is this sin that is inflicted such suffering on Jesus Christ on the cross. That anger we feel reading the account of the cross, the suffering and death of an innocent man should be directed at our own sins. Each and every sin, no matter how small, is a sin that hung Jesus on that cross that made necessary the atonement found there with all of its agony that caused separation from God. Therefore, another question that we are forced to ask ourselves is, well, which do you love more? Do you love your sin more? Or do you love your Savior, Jesus Christ, more? Each temptation To submit to the desires of our flesh is an opportunity to show where our true affections lie. But we should also hate our sin because it is the sin that separates and alienates us from God. The cross shows us the true reality that physical pain has no equal to the suffering of being separated from God. There's a reason why Jesus says that if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We often try to ignore the spiritual pain that sin causes in our lives and are fairly successful, even as it is very hard for us to ignore our physical pain. The cross is a demonstration that it is better to be in physical discomfort and faithful to God than to sin and have physical pleasure. We should hate our sin because of the spiritual sickness that it inflicts on us that separates us from the source of health and life. Third and finally, the agony and the glory of the cross should teach us the depth of the good news of Jesus Christ and what it means to have become children of God in him by faith in his all-sufficient sacrifice. Think about what the forsakenness of Jesus Christ teaches us about us. Jesus has been forsaken on the cross. 
He has endured the agony of being cut off from the Father. He has become totally bereft of the grace and presence of God. He was utterly separated from all the blessedness of the Father in order that, in order that we never have to experience that curse. Jesus became a curse in order that all who trust in his sacrifice for their sins, poor and miserable sinners though they may be, that in him they may receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, in order that a place could be prepared for them in his father's house, in order that God might never turn his back on them in order that one day they might be able to stand face to face with God Almighty in his everlasting kingdom of joy and peace and righteousness. This is the glorious truth of the gospel, and I pray that it's true about us that we are among those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for our sins And let me say this morning, if you haven't placed your faith in him, I urge you, do not delay. Run to him, run to the foot of his cross and find forgiveness there. See and experience the love and grace of God there and may it transform you into a follower of Jesus Christ who wants to know nothing than Christ in him crucified, who wants to live for no other reason than to offer your life in grateful obedience to the praise of the glory of God. Run to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise that Christ became a curse for us, that he became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would implant that truth into our hearts this day and that it would be received with joy and thanksgiving that we would turn from our sins that we would run from our sins and that we would find ourselves at the foot of the cross where there is forgiveness make us to be followers of Jesus who demonstrate for the world the depth of your love we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe, having heard the word of God proclaimed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.